to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 17. And as you're turning there, we've been in a series the past few weeks entitled The Life of Jesus in Matthew. And in this series, we're slowly leading up to Easter Sunday. So two weeks ago, we looked at the baptism of Jesus. Last week, we looked at the temptation of Jesus. And today, we are looking at the transfiguration of Jesus. So Matthew chapter 17, and I'll be reading verses 1 to 3 in the English Standard Version. So please give your fullest attention to the reading of God's holy word. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are not a God so distant and so far that you leave us here on earth to figure things out. Rather, you speak to us. You give to us your word. You've revealed yourself to us. And the clearest revelation is in Jesus Christ, the God-man who came down to save us. And so, Father, I pray that this very hour, our attention would be on him. Would you free us from distraction, free free us from fatigue, free us from anxiety and worry and all the burdens that we have, for we know in your presence those things are melted away. And instead, give to us a focus to clearly hear your word, to be sharpened by it, quickened by it, healed by it, fed by it, nourished by it, built up by it, and sent out by it. We ask these things because we know only through you and your Holy Spirit are they possible. So Lord, be with us this hour, we pray and we ask in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. This week I came across a story about Napoleon. Now I'm not sure if this story is true, but the story is that Napoleon and his army went to invade Russia. And as they were invading Russia, he got separated from his army in a small town. And as he was looking to rejoin his group to find his men again, there was a group of Russian soldiers who spotted him, and they started chasing him. And so he ran and he ducked into the closest shop that had its doors opened, and it was a fur shop. And there he pleaded with the owner, please, please hide me. And the man pointed to a large pile of furs 
and said, you could hide there. And Napoleon went, and he hid himself under these furs. Well, soon the Russian soldiers came, and they began interrogating the shop owner while basically taking their bayonets and just stabbing through every single pile of fur. But after a while, they couldn't find him, so they got up and they left. And soon after that, a group of Napoleon's men came into the shop, and when he heard them speaking, Napoleon came crawling out from underneath the furs. And the shop owner asked him timidly, Sir, excuse me for asking such a question to to such a great man, but what did it feel like being under those furs, knowing that at any moment it could be your last? Napoleon's face changed He had this look of annoyance. He straightened himself up and said, How dare you ask me such a question? Guards, seize this man. So they seized him. They placed a blindfold on him and started marching him out toward the town square where he knew he was soon going to be executed. And as he sat there, blindfolded and tied to the post, he heard Napoleon shout the orders, Ready! Aim! And in that moment, the shop owner felt a wave of emotions, fear, regret, loneliness, while at the same time, images and memories of his family flooded his mind. And and in that moment, what what felt both like like an eternity, but also a blink of an eye, he felt hands beginning to untie his blindfold. And there, face to face, Napoleon looked at him and said, it felt just like that. Just like that. You know, there are some experiences that words just can't describe. And if you don't experience it yourself, you will never actually understand. This story today, how do you explain what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration as the disciples saw for the very first time the glory of the Son of God before their very eyes? Now, you may be tempted to think that this is one of those experiences that you will never understand. Man, what a momentous occasion. I would never be able to experience something like that. You would be tempted to think that, but you would be wrong. Because the Bible promises us that one day we will not only see Jesus, but we will see him in the fullest, greatest glory. And we too will be transfigured. Our faces will shine like the sun, and our clothes will be as white as light as we stand before him. This passage is one of great hope and great promise. And my prayer this afternoon is that you would just catch just a glimpse of the glory of Jesus. And so as you walk away from the word, you will have been like the disciples, having just seen the glory of our God. My text this afternoon is Matthew 17, verses 1 to 3, and from it I'd like to consider this gospel truth. Beholding Jesus' glory reminds us of what we are truly meant for. Beholding the glory of Jesus reminds us of what we are truly meant for. And so we're going to study this passage, and we're going to look under three things. The first is a portrait of glory. A second, the second is the promise of glory, and the third, a people of glory. So if you're with me, keeping your Bibles open, number one, a portrait of glory. Let me begin by asking this question. If I asked you to draw me a picture of hope, how would you do it? Think about this. Draw me a picture of hope, how would you do it? Perhaps you would make a scene that captures hope. 
So there is a, a man crawling through a long, dark tunnel, but he's right at the edge where there's a hole and light is streaming in. Maybe that's what you would draw. Maybe you would draw somebody in the desert, somebody who looked famished and dehydrated, but he's right at the edge of a pool of water. Well, if I asked you to draw chaos, if I asked you to paint chaos, what would that look like? You know, painting chaos, you probably wouldn't even need a scene. You could take a bunch of paint and splatter it all over. The collision of colors, asymmetrical shapes and images scattered across the canvas. Maybe that would be what chaos is. For those who have a little bit of that OCD tendencies, I would just draw you know, a series of circles, and then one would just be a little bit more oval-like. Oh, the chaos of it. <laughs> you know, it gets in your skin. Okay. Well, if I asked you to draw glory, what would you draw? If I said, give me a portrait of glory... How would you depict that? Well, when God decided to show us his glory, he gave us a portrait of it in the face of his son, Jesus Christ. You see, when we see Jesus Christ, we see God's glory on display to the world. In verse 1, Jesus ascends a mountain with Peter, James, and John, who are Jesus' three closest disciples. The question is, if he wasn't going to bring all 12, why did he bring these three? Well, yes, they are his inner three, but most likely Jesus is fulfilling the Old Testament law that required two to three witnesses. And so when he brings three with him, you know that something is going to happen on that mountain because Jesus wants witnesses for it. So these four men, they ascend a mountain and read with me verse 2. It says, and he, that is Jesus, was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And this word for transfigured in Greek is the word metamorphosis, transformation. Jesus Christ, the appearance of Jesus was so transformed before his disciples that he began to radiate with glory. And what's interesting is for the very first time in history, God's glory is emanating from a person. And this occasion would have shocked the disciples, because all throughout the Bible, whenever God would show and display his glory, it was always mediated. Especially in the book of Exodus, when God's glory is present with his people, it always took on a form. So you read in Exodus 16, 10, it says, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And then when Moses goes up the mountain, it says in Exodus 24, the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And then a few verses later, when it describes the glory, it says that the glory was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain. But here on this mountain, God's glory is seen in Jesus Christ. It's not only that the glory appeared, but what's interesting is that the disciples, they saw the glory of God and they didn't die. In Exodus 33, Moses, in a great moment of boldness, asks of God, please show me your glory. I want to see your glory. And this is how God responds. I will make all my goodness pass before you, but you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. So instead, Moses gets to see God's back. 
But even that is so glorious, so overwhelming, that afterwards when Moses comes down the mountain in Exodus 34, it says, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, he did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. And by drawing all these connections, you can see how Matthew is trying to make the connection back to Exodus. The cloud that overshadowed the mountain is a cloud here. Jesus' face shining like the sun, an overwhelming glory. And so it's appropriate that what do the disciples do when they see that? They're so terrified that they fall down on their faces. Because what they've just seen and what they've just heard God say about who Jesus is, it's too much for them. They know the pattern in history. The pattern is simple. If you see God, then you die. There's nobody who's lived to tell about it, who's seen God face to face and was able to live. You don't behold the unmediated glory with your sinful eyes and live to tell about it. In the same way that you can't stare at the sun in all of its brightness and walk away unaffected in your eyesight. God had told Moses that if he were to see his face, he would die. And yet here the disciples are, seeing the face of God, the glory of God, the fullness of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And not only do they live to tell about it, But Jesus touches them in verse 7 and says, rise and have no fear. You see, this is what sets Jesus apart from Moses. Moses' face was like a mirror. And in spending time with God, being in God's presence, his face like a mirror began reflecting the glory of God that he was beholding. But Jesus' glory is not reflecting anything. Jesus' face is not like a mirror. Jesus does not reflect God's glory. The glory of God is emanating from within him. You see, Jesus' face is not like a mirror reflecting God's glory. Jesus' face is like a window. Do you ever drive through your neighborhood and see a family late at night that has the TV on and the lamps on, but their curtains are open, and so the light within is radiating outwards, and you can see everything? You see, God, Jesus was not radiating, reflecting God's glory. That glory from within him was beginning to come out. And what we see here on this Mount of Transfiguration is a glimpse of two things. One, it's a picture of Jesus' glory before he took on flesh, his pre-existent glory. But it's also a picture of the glory Jesus will have after his resurrection. His skin, his clothes, they cannot contain the glory that was bound up and covered in human nature and cloth garments. And Jesus wasn't taking on something new. Glory wasn't something that he was unfamiliar with. It was the glory within breaking out. If anything, when you saw Jesus radiating glory, you weren't seeing something new. It was new to you, but you were seeing Jesus as he always was meant to be. And as he truly is. You know, I've talked about this before, but my father has owned and and run a a seafood business in Baltimore City for nearly 30 years. And as a result, uh, the smell of fish is not merely uh, something that comes on him. It's actually something that comes off of him. Uh, It's embedded deep within his pores. And 
After he works on Wednesdays, every Wednesday he goes to church for Wednesday evening service. Or, you know, sometimes he has a wedding to attend or a funeral attend. And he doesn't have time to go all the way home and shower. So what he'll do is he'll try to cover it up. He'll spray cologne on, deodorant, change of clothes, strong scented soap. But at the end of the day, the smell of fish always comes out. If he walks by you, you smell the external created fragrance. It may be pleasant, but if you get the great privilege of having to sit next to him for throughout the whole entire service, the truth will not remain buried. It comes out, it seeps out eventually, and your nose will catch its scent. Because when the cologne fades, when the aroma of Drakkar Noor, which is what he used to wear, when that goes away, you cannot deny the glorious and radiant fragrance of whiting, catfish, and sea bass. Ultimately, nothing can mask it. So too with Christ. Within his human body is the eternal glory of the creator and sustainer God. You see, underneath his humanity is a hurricane. It is the cloud of glory, the fire of glory, the rumbling and thundering glory of Mount Sinai, and it is hidden behind a veil of flesh. And in this moment on the mountain, as it begins emanating from within, Matthew writes, his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. The portrait of God's glory is seen in the person of Jesus. And so my question is this, is this what you see and you sense when you look at Jesus? Is the Jesus that you know the God of glory? Not just a man of sorrows, not just a lamb led to be slaughtered, but the king of glory that Psalm 24 talks about. The one of whom it is written that the train of his robe fills the temple. You see, is your Jesus somebody that you should learn from and try to be like? Or is your Jesus one before whom you fall down on your face? Is your Jesus one whom you must listen to and obey? Is your Jesus the one that Moses, representing the law, pointed to? And the one that Elijah, representing the prophets, testified about? Is your Jesus the word who became flesh and dwelt among us? And have you seen his glory? Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Because if this is true about Jesus then you need to see him for who he is, not who you want him to be. So Christ is the portrait of glory. Well, how do we apply this? How does this Christology, that's the doctrine of Christ, your theology of Christ, how does that translate into something practical? How does knowing Christ is the portrait of glory affect me? What does it mean for me? Well, this past week, I went to Indianapolis for the Gospel Coalition Conference, and uh, in order to save some money, drove to Trenton, took a train from Trenton up to Newark, and then flew from Newark to the airport. And on the way there, it took about, um, maybe about six hours, and on the way home, it took nine hours. So all this travel, I'm, I know I'm preaching on this, I've been praying about it, I'm thinking about it, lots of time to think about it. And in all that time, I was thinking, God, how do I apply this to the people? And you know what I realized? When I was asking, how do I apply this? I was asking the wrong question. 
And if you're thinking the same thing, how do I apply this to my life? You may be asking the wrong question too. Here's what I mean. Let me describe it this way. Let's just say I came back from seeing the Grand Canyon and I loved it. What would be the best way for you to go see the Grand Canyon as well? For me to get you to go see it? Would I need to search your heart motives? Would I need to show you why you don't deserve to go to the Grand Canyon? No, the best thing for me to do is to describe its beauty, to describe the wonder of the canyon. It's to try to use my words and all my faculties to capture the breathtaking splendor of it all, to give you a sense of how exactly grand it really is and how it draws you in so that you can all in its expanse. I'm not, if I want you to go see the Grand Canyon, I don't try to change your heart or your motivation. I don't argue with why you should go there. I just describe it in a way that honors it. And then I trust that the majesty of it, the beauty of it will do its work in you. Because if you get a glimpse of it, if I do a good enough job and you sense that there's a great mystery there and you want to go see it, it'll make you want to go. You see, my point is, you don't do anything with the information about the Grand Canyon. You let it do something to you. Do you see? You don't do anything with the measurements and the scope and the expanse of how big it is. You let it move you. You let it stir your heart and get you excited to go. So in the same way, when we talk about the Mount of Transfiguration, what we have in Jesus who radiates with the divine glory, we don't do anything with that information. We let that do something to you. So the question is not, what does this mean to my life? The question is, what does this do to me? So I'm asking you, knowing this about Jesus Christ, what does that do to you? How is the beauty of Christ's glory drawing you to turn your attention from other things to focus on him? How is the radiance showing you the fleeting glory of the things that you pursue against the satisfying glory of all that he is? How is his brilliance piercing through your sin and your shortcomings so that you sense the truer splendor of his majesty and his presence? How is his glory overturning the desires and affections of your heart away from lesser things so that you long after grander things? How does beholding Jesus Christ remind you of the way that you were created and meant to be his and he yours? To know Jesus, to see him, is to know and to see God's glory. And so it is good for our souls to behold this one because we were created for that same glory. Second, a promise of glory. A natural question to ask is this. Jesus was transfigured into a state of glory. Why didn't he stay that way? For you youth group students, if you remember, if any of you have seen Dragon Ball Z, and these characters, they go Super Saiyan, and then they win, and then they go back to being regular, and it's like, why don't you just stay Super Saiyan? Your life would be easier. Jesus, in the same way, glowing, radiant, transfigured, why doesn't he just stay that way? Well, Peter seems to be thinking the same thing. Look at verse 4. Peter suggests, Lord... It is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, 
One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. What does Peter want to do? Peter's trying to capture this glorious moment. He wants it to last. It's kind of like when you get to the end of an ice cream cone and you, you start slowing down your licks and your bites get smaller because you, you want it to last. Peter is on this mountain and he sees Jesus in glory and he wants it to last. So he offers to build these tents so that they can stay. Why does he do this? It's because a few verses earlier in Matthew 16, Jesus had just told the disciples that he needs to go to Jerusalem, that he will suffer and he will be killed. And Peter gets so riled up about this. Peter's an emotional guy. His highs are super high and his lows are super lows. And so Peter rebukes, he says, Jesus, follow me. He calls, he pulls Jesus aside and he rebukes him. (laughs) Think about this. He rebukes Jesus. Because Jesus says, I must go to Jerusalem and suffer and die. And so Peter's all messed up inside. And so when he sees Jesus in glory, he says, I want this to last. Please, can I build you a a tent? I want you to stay. I want to preserve this moment. And although that's Peter's plans, God has another plan. Because if you look in verse 5, this is what Matthew writes. Peter was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Did you see that? He was still speaking when a cloud overshadowed him, and a voice came. Peter gets cut off by God. Peter gets interrupted by a divine voice from heaven. You have to be saying something really, really wrong, really, really incorrect, That in the middle of your sentence, God would decide to open up the heavens and speak to correct you. You see, Peter does not quite understand what Jesus is saying. Six days earlier, before the start of this event, Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 16, 25, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is the upside-down, inside-out principle of the kingdom of God. If you want to find your life, you got to lose it. Peter doesn't understand. Peter doesn't understand that for Jesus to be truly exalted, he must go low. And that the glory of Jesus on this mountaintop isn't his final glory. It's a preview. It's a promise of another glory that's going to come. And this glory comes not as Jesus tries to preserve it, but Jesus lets it go. This glory is going to come not as Jesus clenches his fist to hold on tightly, but he opens up his palms. You see, God interrupting Peter is basically God's way of saying to Peter, why would you want to capture this moment of glory when there's a greater glory yet to come? This is just a preview, Peter. Who captures the preview? You all know this by now. My heart loves and desires the gospel, but my taste buds love and desire steak. (laughs) A few years ago, my brother for my birthday, he used to live in New York City, he invited me out for a day trip, and he made reservations at Peter Luger's Steakhouse, which, if you know, is a very famous steakhouse. I was very excited to go. USDA prime beef that's dry-aged, on-premise. It's glorious. Well, when I went, I was so excited. I don't know if some of you do this too, but I was just taking pictures of everything. And I love, I take pictures of food. It helps me capture the, the memories. Emily Jennison, one time I, 
I tried to be cool, and I tried to add her onto Instagram, and she said, I didn't know who you were because your pictures were just food. <laughs> well, that's exactly how you know it's me. And I'm going, I'm taking pictures of everything. Maybe you do the same. You know, especially if you go to a nice restaurant that you'll probably never, ever get to go to again. You want to capture every moment of it. But how many of you, if you went to a nice restaurant and you were taking pictures, would open up the menu and see the picture of a steak and go, ooh, this is nice, and take a picture of the picture in the menu? How many of you do, would do that? Nobody. Well, is there something wrong with the picture? No, the picture is wonderful. The picture is glorious. I mean, I'm looking at the picture, and I'm already salivating. The picture is wonderful, but the picture is just a preview. The picture is just giving us a promise. What is the picture? The picture is saying, you think, you think this looks good? <laughs> Order me, and I'll come out in a greater glory. <laughs> right? You, you, th- you think this looks good? Order me, and I'll come out already cut for you in a plate of melted butter that's sizzling because I was just in an 800-degree broiler. I'm glorious. That's what that picture says. That's what the picture promises. So you don't take a picture of the picture of the steak. You take a picture of that which is promising. So here's Peter on the mountaintop, and he sees this great glorious event, and he's trying to get, he's trying to get it to last. Let me build you temple, tents, so you guys can stick around. But what he doesn't understand is that this is just a picture, and it's actually pointing to a greater glory that's going to come. But what's difficult for the disciples to understand, what's difficult for them to swallow, is that the greater glory that Jesus is talking about will only come after suffering and death. This is why in verse 12, Jesus reminds them, so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. In the same way that John the Baptist was persecuted and killed, Jesus is saying, I have to go the same way. And so they don't want glory if it requires the cross. But they don't understand that embedded in this passage is a great promise of hope. Because right there in verse 9, as they come down the mountain, Jesus says to his disciples, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. You see, all the disciples heard were dead. But what Jesus is saying is, I am going to be raised. Yes, he will die. But there is a promise of resurrection glory. You see, Jesus descends down this mountain. He'll soon enter a valley of death. But it is God's promise that through the valley, on the other end of it, is a greater mountaintop, a greater glory, a higher exaltation. And Jesus is prepared to endure the cross. He's prepared to set his side his glory. He's prepared to reject the adoration and the praise of men in order to take our punishment so that, listen, you and I, not only that we're saved, but that we are brought into glory with him. Jesus wasn't okay standing on the mountain with his glory. Why? Because he wanted to bring you into glory. Do you understand this about the gospel? Jesus gave up his glory. He suffered a criminal's death. He received the curse of sin so that as he emerged out of the valley in his resurrection, he could lead us into glory with him. This is what it's meant when the author of Hebrews says that Jesus brings many sons to glory through his suffering. Why does it matter that Christ is glorious? 
Well, because that glory will soon be your glory. It's a glory that he intended to bring you into all along. Which leads to our third point, a people of glory. In verse 1 it says, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John to witness the transfiguration. You see, Peter, James, and John, they were able to participate in Jesus' glory, but only from a distance. Only as spectators. But we who stand on the other side of the cross not only get to witness his glory, but we come we become participants in his glory. We're made a people of glory. You see, all of us desire glory, whether to give it or to receive it. All the glory that you're starving for, all the glory that you want from others, all the glory that you want to give other people, all the glory that you hunger for in the world, the glory that you seek to attain through performance and accomplishments, all of this glory, you have these longings Because you were ultimately made to behold and to share in the glory of Christ. You see, our souls, our hearts, our lives are like a compass needle that are restlessly looking for true north, looking for true glory. And until we behold Jesus Christ, we will only search and search, but never find. In 1941, C.S. Lewis wrote, a sermon, gave a sermon entitled The Weight of Glory. It's also the name of a book. But in his sermon, he's talking about glory, and he says one way to understand glory is beauty. Beauty is a glory. And this is what he says. We do not merely want to see beauty, though God knows that even that is bounty enough. We want something else which can hardly be put into words, to be united with the beauty, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become a part of it. Isn't this how we desire beauty? We desire glory. But he goes on, he says, the sense that in this universe we are treated as strangers, the longing to be acknowledged, to meet with some response, to bridge some chasm, distance that yawns between us and reality is part of our inconsolable secret. And surely from this point of view, the promise of glory becomes highly relevant to our deep desire. For glory meant a good report with God, acceptance by God, response, acknowledgement, and welcome into the heart of things. And then he gives this imagery. The door on which we have been knocking all our lives will open at last. The glory that we're searching for comes through God alone, and all of our lives are just a search for it, knocking on every single door. But it's only when we come to know Jesus Christ that the door will open at last and we will be received and led into glory. How does that happen? The way that we are led into glory only happens through the cross. What happened on the Mount of Transfiguration only has true meaning for you when you understand what happened on the hill of Golgotha where Christ died. You see, the events of Matthew 17 only make sense when understood in light of the events of Matthew 27. Mark Jones, a pastor, writes that Jesus was revealed in glory on this mountain, but he was crucified in shame on the hill of Golgotha. On the mountain, his clothes were majestically shining as white as light, but on that hill, Roman soldiers shamelessly divided his bloodied garments. 
On the mountain, Jesus was surrounded by the Old Testament's two greatest prophets. But on that hill, he was surrounded by two criminals who hung and reviled him. On the mountain, a great bright cloud overshadowed those who were present. But on the hill, darkness covered the land. You see, on the mountain, God declared, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. But on that hill, the father did not listen to his son as he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On that mountain, Peter excitingly thrilled, shouted, Lord, it is good that we are here. But on that mountain, that same apostle was hiding and nowhere to be found. You see, Jesus Christ left the mountain and ascended a hill so that he could grab you hand in hand and lead you up another mountain. Jesus came down the mountain of glory, went up a hill of shame for you. You see, because on that hill, as he took your place and mine, as he took your shame and mine, as he gave us a renewed heart, as he brought us into his family, he was making us eligible so that when we knocked at the door, it would be open to us and glory would be waiting. You see, this happens as you behold Jesus. As you behold him, you not only see his glory, you participate. That glory becomes yours. You see, I think a lot of us, we may have that. It may sound strange. Okay, yes, I can behold the glory of Jesus, but his glory is our glory. That doesn't make sense. But this is the very promise of Scripture. You see, here it's interesting that in verse 7 and 8, Jesus touches his disciples after they've fallen down. He says, rise and have no fear. And then Matthew records this. And when they lifted their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. No one but Jesus only. Eyes were meant to behold Jesus in in him only. You look at him and no other. You trust in him and no other. You worship him and no other. You follow him and no other. And as you behold Jesus, do you know what happens? As you behold Jesus and Jesus only. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. First John 3, 2. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Colossians 3, 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You see, in Christ, all that you were meant for, all that you were ever craving for, the search for true north, the knocking on every door, when you behold him, You not only see his glory, but you are being transfigured yourself. So in the midst of trials and suffering, hardship and unrest, doubts and struggles, fears and worries, hurts and pains, through our own valleys and our own hills, will you look up and see Jesus and him only? You see, as you behold him, as you look at the one who entered the valley of death, and ascended the hill of Golgotha for you. You're reminded of the glory that you are promised to share and because of him. You're reminded that you were always meant for him and he for you. 
And you behold him, the door in which you have been knocking on your whole life will be opened. And he will lead you into glory. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he left all of the riches of heaven, the glory he had amongst the angels, the glory that the cosmos spoke. And he came to this earth, and that was bottled underneath the frailty of human flesh. But even human flesh couldn't contain it. For in the transfiguration, we see his preexistent eternal glory beginning to radiate off of him. Yet Jesus did not bask in that glory on the mountain. Because if he did, he would have been there alone. Yet instead, he chose to descend the mountain and ascend a hill. The hill of Calvary. The hill of Golgotha. And by taking on our sin, washing us clean, giving us a new heart, giving us a new identity, bringing us into your family, he now presents us eligible so when we are knocking, the door will be open and he will lead many sons and daughters into glory. Until that day, give to us hope. Until that day, give to us strength when we're in our valleys. Until that day, let us hold to that promise when we are feeling like we're crucified on a hill. Until that day, help us to behold Jesus and to see no one but him only. Father, work these things in our hearts, not asking what does this mean to me, not trying to apply it, but just allowing this truth to impact us, to change our hearts. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now receive the benediction. Now may the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the love of God the Father Almighty, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, may the blessing of the triune God be with God's people, both now and forever. Hear the dismissal from God's word. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Go in peace.